Section 1 of The Man on the Meteor. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Krista Zaleski. Man on the Meteor by Ray Cummings. Part 1. Chapter 1. I do not know where I was born. I am ignorant of the country. I do not even know on which world it was. They are trying to tell me now that I was born here on earth. That is absurd. And when you read what I have done, the extraordinary experiences I have undergone, you will realize that I am the product of some greater civilization than any you have on this earth. I doubt even that I was born on any planet of the solar system. I must be at least 80 years of age now, as you on earth measure time. I am an old man, and my memory is full of strange lapses. There are blank periods in my life for which I cannot account. But you will bear with me, I am sure. I shall tell you my history exactly as I remember it. Chapter 2 The First Recollection The first recollection that I have was when I was a young man at the full height of my physical strength. Let us say I was twenty, with dark hair and eyes, a slender body but muscular and powerful. The day I have in mind is clear to my memory now but everything that happened to me before it is a blank. I found myself lying on the ground. It was dark, and there was a sky full of stars and strange flashing lights. I sat up stiff and sore, and bruised all over. I was encased in some sort of a rubber suit, with a pack on my back. My head was enclosed in a helmet of transparent, rigid material. I felt as though I was smothering, and I tore off the helmet and flung it from me. I drank in a deep breath of the night air. It was pure and sweet, but heady. It made my senses real like some potent wine. I say that I sat up. That is not strictly true. I pushed my elbow against the ground, and my whole body went up into the air. I floated back to a sitting posture. I was light as a feather. The night was calm, without a breath of air stirring. Lucky for me, for I would have been blown away had there been any wind. I sat there puzzling over my very existence. I knew nothing, not even my own name. I have since named myself Nemo. They tell me there was once a famous sea captain by that name here on earth. I assure you, that is coincidence merely, for I have no connection with your earth other than that I am at this moment unfortunately imprisoned upon it. This place where I found myself that starry night showed a barren landscape with only a few queerly shaped stunted trees. The horizon was very close to me, almost at hand, in fact, for the ground was curved with an enormous convexity. It was, indeed, as though I were clinging to the top of a ball, whirling through space. The stars were swinging across the sky with visible movement. I had been conscious no more than a minute when a moon swung up into view, then another, and then, without warning, a million tiny worlds flashing silver with reflected sunlight burst up from below the horizon and swarmed the heavens. Behind them I saw a tremendous glowing silver sphere, with dark bands upon it, a sphere so large that as it rose it almost filled the sky. I want no mystery in my narrative. I have no desire to puzzle you. I was on a tiny meteor, one of the myriad that swarm in circular orbits about the planet Saturn and form its rings. No doubt you are ignorant. Most Earth people are, I find. Let me enlighten you further. Saturn, in position outward from the sun, 
is the sixth major planet of the solar system. Its mean distance from the Sun is 887,098,000 miles. It is a globe almost as large as Jupiter, 74,163 miles in diameter to be exact. It has, however, a trifle less than half of Jupiter's density, and only one-ninth the density of the Earth. With Saturn's rings, you are perhaps familiar in a general way. They are concentric and encircle the planet like a flat hat brim, a brim more than 37,000 miles broad. These rings are composed of billions upon billions of tiny meteors revolving around Saturn, all in almost the same plane and each maintaining its separate orbit, each a tiny satellite, each glowing silver from its reflected sunlight. And it was upon one of these tiny meteors that I found myself. Do not imagine that I knew all of these facts at the moment. Far from it. I had no knowledge of any kind. My body was developed to manhood, but I was ignorant of everything with only instinct and a dawning reason to guide me. I had tossed away my transparent helmet. It left my hand and went through the air like a stone from a catapult. The last I saw of it, it was sailing out over a line of trees. My brain was still confused. But I knew that my body was overwarm. I took off the rubber garment and pack, finding myself in a white-knitted affair like a bathing suit, sleeveless shirt and trunks. The first glimpse. I stood up unsteadily and found that I had just enough weight to maintain my footing. My head was reeling, I suppose largely because of the quality of the air. Air, you say? Air on a meteor like that? Do you call yourself an astronomer? If so, you show your ignorance by such questioning. Air, or at least something that served my purposes of breathing, was there and that I am here alive to tell it must be your proof. I could see perhaps a quarter of a mile. The land curved away, dropping down in every direction, so that the sky at the horizon showed seemingly below the level of my feet. I was visibly on the top of the world. Overhead, those billions of tiny worlds were swarming. Sometimes fragments of stardust would enter my atmosphere, flaming red shooting stars burning themselves out in an instant, and behind everything hung that gigantic silver ball that was Saturn. The whole firmament was swinging sidewise. In a few moments, half of Saturn was below my horizon. The sun rose behind me, a smaller sun than appears to you here on Earth, but still the same yellow-red color. It was daylight, with the sun mounting toward the zenith so quickly, in less than an hour it would be there, and my day would be half over. I saw myself now to be standing on a slight rise of black sandy ground. There were metallic rocks lying about, a low, scanty vegetation in patches on the ground, vegetation of a bluish color, and flimsy, stunted trees. These had broad, angular blue-white trunks with spreading tops ten feet up, and foliage that was bluish-white. Behind me was a jagged metallic peak perhaps a hundred feet in height. There was no water in sight, no sign of life of any kind. Quite suddenly I discovered that I was both hungry and thirsty. What was I to do? This world was so small, I could have started walking in any direction and come back to my starting point in a very short time. Walking was impossible to walk. I weighed almost nothing. I stood teetering on tiptoe, straining every muscle to maintain my balance, feeling like a balloon poised ready to sail away. I make these speculations now. At that time I had not the reasoning ability to speculate. All I knew was that I was hungry and thirsty. 
with a hunger and thirst that was maddening. But I was young and strong, and youth fights. I took a step forward. Under the impulse of my gentle leg thrust, my body rose into the air in a broad arc. I suppose I went up a hundred feet, sailing forward toward the line of trees at the horizon. I lost my balance. My arms and legs were flying. I floated gently down and landed on my face near the base of a tree. You smile. I assure you it was not humorous to me. I stood up again, trembling with surprise and alarm. A new vista of land beyond the former horizon had opened. I saw other little jagged peaks, a few hundred feet away, and behind them, over that dizzying curve downward of the world, was the azure of cloudless space. I was frightened, and now I know it was with good reason. Had I leaped recklessly into the air, I might have left my tiny world entirely, escaped from its slight gravitation sufficiently to become its satellite, or perhaps even completely to depart its vicinity and become a satellite of Saturn. An inhospitable world. This tiny world upon which I found myself was inhospitable to the extreme, and yet if I had been conscious of the choice, I would not have wanted to abandon it for empty space. Out there, worse than suffering hunger and thirst, I would not even be able to breathe. Thus, if you are of philosophical mind, you may find consolation in an unhappy plight. There is, indeed, always something worse to contemplate. Whatever my life before this day may have been, walking evidently was part of it. I know that because my instinct was to walk. I decided to weigh myself down with rocks, and thus be able to maintain a footing. Futile conception. I seized a huge rock of black metallic quartz in each hand, only to find that the rocks themselves were mere feathers in my grasp. Angered, I flung them into the air. They sailed away out over the horizon. Undoubtedly, they left my world never to return. The sun was now past the zenith. It was mid-afternoon. Shortly, it would be night again. I was clinging to the tree trunk for support when quite near me I saw what seemed to be the mouth of a cave. I was staring at it when a figure appeared from below. I did not move, and this thing evidently did not see me. It was a girl, fashioned in human form like myself. She stood there cloaked in the long, waving masses of her golden hair. I must have made some slight sound, for after a moment she looked my way. I caught a glimpse of a beautiful oval face, framed in the golden tresses, lips full and red, eyes blue, wide now with fear. Without warning she left the ground. She went swiftly past me, lying in the air gracefully on one side, her arms moving rhythmically. She was swimming in the air with all the grace and skill of a mermaid. I stood spellbound. In a moment she had passed over the curve of the world and disappeared. Chapter 3 Can I say that the sight of this girl inspired in me any emotion stronger than my passions of hunger and thirst? Not so. I was in the full bloom of my manhood, yet the sight of this beautiful woman thrilled me because now I knew instinctively I might find food and water. I scrambled forward, holding myself to the ground with difficulty and entered the mouth of her cave like some marauding animal seeking the sustenance I craved. The cave mouth gave into a tunnel leading at an angle downward. The walls were smooth. I forced myself down, half sliding, half gently falling. For an instant the thought came to me that I would encounter other living creatures, things to keep me from the food and drink I wanted. Had I met them, humans or beasts, I know I should have fought desperately. It was dark in the tunnel, but soon I saw that the rocks were glowing with a phosphorescence. This grew brighter as I advanced. 
Exploration. I went down perhaps two hundred feet. Then the tunnel opened. I was in a subterranean chamber of indeterminate size, possibly five hundred feet square, with a black rocky ceiling some fifty feet above me. The whole place was dimly lighted by the red-silver glow which came from the rocks. The air was denser, with a pungent aromatic odor that seemed to strengthen me and clear my head. The sides of the cave were rough and broken with overhanging rocks like shelves. Here and there were other small tunnel mouths. Most important of all, a small subterranean stream crossed the cave, opening up into a little lagoon near the center. It was a thin-looking milk-white fluid. I flung myself down to it with a splash. It tasted not like milk, but like pure cold water, though very thin and light. I drank my fill, the joy of it. There was a pile of blue fabric, woven grass, on the bank beside the stream. The girl's couch it proved to be. The robes were very soft, gossamer in weight. I started to dry myself upon one of them, but the water, I shall call it that, evaporated like alcohol, and I was dry in a moment. There was food here. A patch of black soil had queer fungus-like growths in it. I had no doubt it was the girl's food. There were the remnants of a fire, although I did not know what it was at the time. On a stone was some of the fungus, which had been cooked. Of this I ate. Upon the couch I lay at ease. The blue robes lay around me like swans down. My slight weight made me seem floating in them. It was my first conscious moment of physical peace. With hunger and thirst appeased, my thoughts turned to the girl. She was not only the first woman, but, to my memory, the first living thing I had seen. Where was she now? Could I capture her? Across the cave I saw something move. The mouth of a passageway was there beyond the stream, and in the dim glow of light I could make out the girl standing there. She was watching me as I lay in possession of her couch. I held myself motionless. After a moment she began coming forward, timidly, yet curiously, to inspect me. She stopped at the edge of the stream, no more than fifty feet away. Her hair fell in waves to her knees. She stood hesitating, frightened, yet drawn by a power greater than her fear. I could see the muscles of her limbs tensed for instant flight. I had intended to leap suddenly across the stream, but a strange shyness came over me. Instead, I called to her. Words? I had no spoken language. I called some syllable. It startled her, but she answered, a soft little call of shy friendliness. I wanted her to come to my side of the stream, but she would not. I beckoned to her, but she moved backward on fairy-like tiptoed steps. It angered me. I waved my arm vehemently and tried to climb to my feet, struggling with the airy, half-floating robes of the couch. The girl took flight. Her arms struck out, and like a swimmer mounting through the water, she floated up to the ceiling, landing upon a ledge of rock. Through a tangle of her hair, her face peered down at me, and though her eyes were frightened, there seemed an impish mocking expression to her tremulous smile. Shyness dropped from me. She would obey me. I would make her. I kicked myself into the air and swam as I had seen her swim. But it was not as easy as it looked. I turned over in the air losing my balance in spite of myself. The chase. I reached the ledge, striking my shoulder violently upon it as I landed in a heap. But she was not there. Across the cave, down by the couch, she stood poised on tiptoe, looking at me. And this time her red mouth and dancing eyes were openly mocking. 
For half an hour I pursued her about the cave, but she eluded me as easily as though she had been a butterfly, and I one of your earth children in eager chase. She could have escaped from the cave, but she had no fear of me now. At last, bruised and exhausted by my futile efforts, I sank upon her couch, and again she stood nearby regarding me. I was angry and sulky. I pretended to disregard her. At last, utterly worn out, I fell asleep. Chapter 4 When I awoke, the girl was sitting beside me. Her soft fingers had been stroking my hair. It was their touch which had awakened me. As I moved and opened my eyes, she instantly withdrew beyond my reach. I was hungry again, and when I motioned to her and indicated the food, she seemed to understand. I sat quite still, and within a few minutes she was deftly preparing a meal. But I was aware that she watched me narrowly, and seldom came within my reach. The fire she produced by rubbing two stones together. It seemed to ignite the stones with a tiny flickering flame like the burning of sulfur. She had gathered a pile of dried vegetation from the surface above the cave, and when that was blazing she added rocks that glowed like coal. The fire interested me tremendously. It alarmed me, but only at first, for I saw that the girl had no fear of it. I need not go into details. Her manner was proud when presently she indicated the hot food ready to eat, and she watched me expectantly while I tasted it. I smiled my approval, and beckoned to her to take some of it with me. At which she curled up on the rope beside me, eating the food I pushed towards her. We were friends. Like myself, she had no spoken language. But when we tried to talk, it came fast. I indicated myself and told her I was Nemo. The words seemed to spring readily to my mind. I have no doubt it was some part of my earlier life. She had no name. I called her Nona. It seemed to please her. She repeated it after me half a dozen times and clapped her hands delightedly. Learning to travel. A little later we went up to the surface of our tiny world. It chanced to be daylight, and Nona taught me how to swim through the air, how to handle myself against this lack of gravity. The art came to me quickly. I was soon able to swim about with swift, powerful strokes. My stronger muscles gave me an advantage over her. I could swim more quickly, but I could never attain her deftness, her agility. She would swoop about, dive head downward in a graceful arc, right herself and land on tiptoe. We circled our little globe, swimming at an altitude of about a hundred feet, and following the sun. And within half an hour we were back at our starting point. Everywhere I saw the same bleak landscape. It was night when we returned, for we had overtaken the sun, and passed it. But in a few moments daylight came again. Then Nona showed me how to jump. With arms folded, she leaped vertically into the air. Straight up her body shot, her hair brushed flat against her by the downward rush of wind. She held herself upright by throwing out a hand occasionally. Like an arrow she mounted, until standing on the ground I could see her only as a tiny dark speck against the blue of the sky. She came swimming down a few moments later, her hair waving like a cloak behind her, spun gold with the sunlight on it. She was laughing and flushed from the exertion. Then, at arm's length, with fingers clasped, we leaped up together. The tiny world dropped away. Looking down, it showed itself as a ball. I could see far around it. We seemed to mount endlessly. The air grew so rare I gasped for breath. My head was roaring. I was cold. Below, I could see the spherical meteor turning under us. We were in space, no longer a part of our world. 
and we had almost reached the limit of its atmosphere. Nona's fingers clutched mine tightly. Suddenly, she twisted me downward and dropped me. A strong side wind had sprung up. We swam down against it, fighting our way until at last we were back to the meteor surface. I was tired, for through my clumsiness I had used far more energy than Nona. But I would not let her see it. I saw her look upon the muscles of my arms and shoulders, and her admiration pleased me. I stretched my arms for her, showed her the muscles of my legs, and looked about for some way of displaying my prowess. There were many boulders around that could be loosened. One by one, I flung them into the air, sent them into space, never to return. Moving mountains. Nona watched me with awe, encouraging me with little syllables of pleasure as I selected larger and larger rocks. Some I dug up and tore loose, until at last I ripped off the top and side of a hill. It was a mountain of rock. I staggered like Atlas with it over my head, and then launched it into the air. It rose a short distance and fell back to form another hill. Nona gazed at me with new respect, and with a look in her eyes that made my heart pound. I was casting about for some larger burden, but she drew me away. I was pleased. A sense of my own power filled me. I was master here on this world of mine. I could have taken it apart bit by bit and tossed it into space. I could tear down mountains, build others in their stead. Facts and figures? I am in a position now to give them to you. My meteor had a diameter of five miles, a circumference of some fifteen. Its density relative to Earth was 0.67. Its surface gravity, again relative to your Earth, was 0. 0.00039, placing Earth as 1.0. My weight at the surface of my meteor, neglecting other factors which I shall name in a moment, was slightly over one ounce. Without underexertion, I could leap upward nearly 10,000 feet. That is to say, almost two miles. And the mountain of rock I tossed into the air on your earth would have weighed some 320,000 pounds. I have said that the boulders I tossed upward left the surface of the meteor never to return. At an initial velocity of 13 feet a second, all objects become satellites of the meteor, revolving about it comparatively close to the surface in perfect circles. The velocity of escape was but 18 and a half feet a second. That is, the velocity which would cause an object to pass into outer space, moving onward until it found some larger body to encircle. I give these figures without corrections for atmosphere, axial rotation of the meteor, or the attraction of other bodies. Theoretically, they are accurate, though in practice they were altered somewhat. During our brief days, we weighed more than I have stated, while at night less. Indeed, had we essayed to jump into the air at night, we should doubtless have been unable to struggle our way back. How can that be, you ask? Our proximity to Saturn. About this great planet we were revolving at a distance of no more than 35,000 miles. Saturn's surface gravity is a trifle greater than that of your Earth, 1.07 to be exact. Saturn's density is only one-ninth that of Earth, but the difference is made up because of its tremendous size. Saturn's gravity, to us on the meteor, was an appreciable pull, even though diminished by the distance between us and further offset by the meteor's rapid rotation. Thus you see, when Saturn was below us in daytime, its gravity was added to ours. But at night, when it was in the sky above, it was subtracted. These conditions applied to the days I am describing. Our meteor was then between Saturn and the Sun. Later in our year, 
when we had passed around Saturn, the sun was blotted out. There was then no daylight, merely alternate periods of a sky filled with Saturn's silver disk and the azure star-filled outer space. I have not mentioned the time of our meteor's axial rotation. It was, as you and Earth measure time, two hours, fifty-eight minutes, a complete day and night in less than three hours. Glorious night! When I had finished showing Nona my strength, it was night again. And such a night! Saturn no more than 35,000 miles away. The darkened bands were plainly visible. When fully overhead, the circular limb of the planet came down in all directions almost to our horizon. The silver light from it was dazzling, and everywhere in the sky meteors like ourselves were whirling past, silver in space, flaming red when fragments of them struck our atmosphere. Occasionally a meteorite would strike our surface, but we had no fear of them. For an hour, perhaps, we stood together, silent, gazing with awe at these mysteries of the sky, until at last Nona gently drew me back into her cave. Chapter 5 Within the cave, the air seemed warmer than before, perhaps because I was flushed and tired from my exertion. The radiant light from the rocks was soft. Here, all was quiet and peace. At once I threw myself upon Nona's couch, stretching my limbs, head pillowed upon my crooked arm. For a time, as before, she stood regarding me. There was in her gaze now no fear, but a curious softness. I sensed it. With sudden thought, she smiled and swam across the cave. She got a stone, hollowed out like a cup. She filled it at the stream and offered it to me. I drank gratefully. Again, I was conscious of hunger. The fungus-like food was unsatisfying. I made Nona understand, and she seemed distressed. I could see she wanted to feed me, but had no other food. Finally, she motioned me to lie quiet. I watched her as she stretched herself prone on the ground near me. Her head was raised. She was looking keenly, carefully about the cave. Then she began swimming, slowly, stealthily, no more than a foot or two above the cave floor, circling about, up along the walls, back overhead following the line of the ceiling. Once, when she was hovering over by the side wall, I saw her grow suddenly alert. I followed her steady gaze, and on a rock fifty feet from her, I made out the outlines of something lying motionless. It was the exact color of the rock itself. It looked like a lizard some three feet long, with white eyes standing out from its forehead. It was because of the eyes that I first saw it. Nona was in midair. Then, like a wasp, she darted at the thing on the rock. Meat for food. The lizard, I shall call it that, saw her coming. It leaped and sailed across the cave. I saw that it had webbed membranes connecting its six outstretched legs. Nona turned in the air after it, her slim body as sinuous as her waving hair itself. She was faster than the lizard, but again on the opposite side of the cave it eluded her. Back and forth across the cave they went. Often the reptile would dash for one of the passageways, but Nona with her greater intelligence always anticipated it and was there to bar its way. The lizard seemed jointed all over, and it could turn in the air with extraordinary swiftness, but not so swift as Nona. Once the reptile whirled back and forth on sustained flight, Nona followed its every twist and turn as one bird follows another. At last she had it in her arms, in mid-air at the center of the cave. Calling to me in triumph, she struggled with it, fighting her way down to the ground. I started toward her, but her voice and gesture waved me away. The lizard was screaming, a shrill, hideous scream. But she had its back bent across her knee. Its spine broke with a crack. 
it lay still. By one foreleg she held its quivering body up to me. She was laughing with happiness as she sought my applause. We ate the meat of its tail and legs, and, satiated, I lay somnolent on the robes, and watched Nona moving about the cave. She extinguished the fire, and at last approached me timidly. I did not notice her. My eyes were half-closed. I was vaguely planning my own hunting for food, wondering if there would be other reptiles larger for me to capture. A twitch at the coverings on which I was lying aroused me. Nona was pulling a robe out from under me for herself. I pushed it toward her. I did not move. It was very soundless in the cave, with only the murmuring of the stream. Nona curled up on her robe near me. Thus we lay silent. But I felt her shy gaze always upon me. And suddenly I came back to complete wakefulness. We stared wordlessly at each other until her gaze timidly dropped. With heart racing, I moved myself slowly toward her. I was afraid to frighten her. But she moved, not away, but to me. Abruptly my arms were around her. Thus I found my habitable world and my mate, beyond which the legitimate needs of man I do not go. Chapter 6 Note to Reader The foregoing manuscript was written by an old man, knowing only as Nemo, who is at present an inmate of one of our state homes for the aged. His case is a curious one. The Institute authorities inform me that two years ago he was found wandering on the streets of Chicago, the victim apparently of amnesia. He had no idea who he was, nor could he give any details of his past life. No papers of identification were found upon him. I talked with the old man personally for some hours. He is undoubtedly cultured, and with a wide though eccentric scientific knowledge. He speaks English with an extraordinary indefinable foreign accent, an accent which leaves one wholly in doubt as to his possible nationality. His memory has never returned. No trace of friends or relatives has been found. At the institution, because of his pleading, he is known simply as Nemo. Though the events of his later life are still a blank, Nemo insists that he can remember, with a clarity which increases daily, the events of his youth. The authorities scoff. They tell me he was doubtless at one time some obscure scientist, possibly of Europe. Efforts are being made to identify him. You have read Nemo's written narrative of his first conscious memories. He gave it to me at my request, and, with a cynicism for which I cannot blame him, assured me that no one would credit it. I have made almost no changes. You have it practically as he wrote it. For myself, I liked the old man. His personality is distinctly likable, and his manner convincing. I can testify that his sole appearance of irrationality lies in the extraordinary things he has to tell. And in these present days of science when nothing seems wholly impossible, and when, as always through history, the thoughtless find it easiest to scoff, I can offer no opinion. I leave you to be his judge. Ray Cummings End of Section 1